Welcome to another episode of Single Payer Radio. We are a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare, and we're an affiliate of the Kentucky chapters of Physicians for a National Health Program. We believe a national, publicly funded, non-profit single payer system is the solution to the current shameful system that puts profit over patients and leaves more than 100 million American people in debt. We're a long-standing community partner with WFMP 1065 and the views and opinions expressed on our show are those of the speakers and not the station. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the group. Single-payer radio can be heard on WFMP 1065 on Mondays at 2, Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. You can live stream us at forwardradio.org, or if you miss a show, you can go to the Forward Radio archives, forwardradio.org slash single-payer. WFMP is an all-volunteer station. We rely on the community for your ideas and funding. Please join us. Let's keep this project going. A couple very disturbing uh, news items this past week in, a, in the Scientific America article. Uh, the headline reads, Universal healthcare could have saved more than 330,000 U.S. lives during COVID. 330,000 U.S. lives. Kay and Harriet have that up on the Facebook account. And then also last week, Kaiser Health News um, and NPR released their findings after investigating medical debt in America. More than 100 million people in America, including 41% of all adults, are burdened with medical debt. This current system is crushing families, and it's a product simply driven by greed. There aren't any guardrails on the system, and it's only getting worse. We can't lay down. We can resist. Join Kentuckians for single-payer health care, kyhealthcare.org. kyhealthcare.org. And if you've got some time and energy on your hands, we're headed to D.C., Washington, D.C., July 29th. Care for a free ride? Reach out to Kay Tillo, our chairperson. You can email Kay at nursenpo at aol.com nurse npo at aol.com folks from around the country are going to be joining in a rally on saturday july the 30th so we're going up to make our voices heard jump in be glad to give you a lift up on this week's episode we're going to hear from joe sparks Joe does a podcast for the Physicians for a National Health Program, and on this uh, this week's episode, 
we're going to hear from Joe interviewing Dr. Anthony Spadero. He is um, he's going to be talking about public health, single payer, and the American Public Health Association in a, about a 20-minute segment. And then he does another about 20 minutes with Dr. Joseph Jarris, and um, that uh, segment is going to be how a conservative came to support single-payer health care. And then we'll finish up with uh, Louisville physician Dr. Steve Lip sharing his thoughts. Here we go. Public Health, Single Payer, and the American Public Health Association. My guest, Anthony Spadero, MD, MPH, is a resident physician in emergency medicine in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He graduated from a combined MD-MPH program from the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He was one of the authors on a policy statement endorsing single-payer health care as the path to universal health care endorsed by the American Public Health Association. Dr. Anthony Spadero, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Thanks for having me, Joe. We're going to discuss how you got the American Public Health Association to pass a resolution supporting a public single-payer healthcare system. But I'd like to start with a basic question, because I don't think people have a good understanding of this. What is public health? Thanks for asking. Public health is the field that promotes wellness, prevents sickness and injury, and protects our communities. You know, I think a lot of people might think about it narrowly. It's just focusing on people getting to wear seatbelts or stop smoking, but I think it encompasses a much broader vision of not just preventing injury, but also promoting health and wellness, whether that be physical, mental, societal. I think it encompasses a lot more than what people might typically think of. Well, let me expand on that a bit with something like Indoor plumbing, I mean, not only is it a matter of great convenience, because I'd hate to have to go outside to go to the bathroom, but would something like indoor plumbing be considered a matter of public health? Yeah, indoor plumbing, clean water, the ability to you know, get a glass of water and not get salmonella or, um, you know, the food products you eat, the kind of house you live in, you know, that's all encompasses public health in addition to, you know, the stuff that happens in and out of the hospital. Well, then wouldn't also some things like, say, central heat and air conditioning be considered public health, making sure people have enough to eat be considered public health? I would think so. And certainly, you know, I think in many, especially in cities and different counties, public health departments, you know, on particularly hot days, they might have open cooling centers particularly cold days, they might put alerts in effect to, you know, have shelter for people that maybe, you know, don't have heat or are homeless, you know, so certainly dealing with the environment, um, certainly much broader than just issues to deal with single payer. I think the environment's a big issue that public health needs to address. And of course, one goal of public health is obviously disease prevention and even accident prevention. Which leads me to my next question. What do you consider to be the goals of public health? I think the goals of public health are to maximize the quality and longevity of life, 
I'm an ER doctor and I work every day focusing on stabilization of sick patients, triaging patients, you know, dealing with broken bones, gunshot wounds, that sort of things. But I think, you know, public health looks sort of beyond just what happens in the emergency department and can think about things that might, you know, impact what brings people to the ED in the first place, like kind of work do they do, how much money, you know, how much money do they have, what their neighborhoods are like, are there, you know, are the streets safe? for drivers, pedestrians, that sort of thing. I would like to shift gears a bit and ask, how well do you think the U.S. met the goals of public health in its response to COVID? So I think there's a lot of things that we actually did well pretty early on in the pandemic. We were trying to create the conditions for people to safely physically distance, covered COVID-related tests and treatments. You know, different city or cities and states try to stop evictions. But I think, unfortunately, for us, that a lot of that movement stopped short of, um, you know, how long the pandemic really lasted. And I think it showed some of the faults in our public health system. You know, people didn't have the financial security to stay home from work for long periods of time. And so that ability to physically distance was undermined. You know, the government didn't always portray the most uniform message on, you know, getting wearing a mask or getting a vaccine. And I, so I think that prevented some of the, what public health officials and workers would want to see as our response to the COVID pandemic. I'm honestly worried about our ability to respond to a future wave, which seems like it very might happen at the time of this recording, given that there's lapse in federal funding for testing and treatments. People aren't you know, gonna get the care they need. There's still financial barriers that lead to delays in care, not just for COVID, but for other things. And I think for future waves of the pandemic, we're going to be even less well-prepared than we were in the past. One of the things you said, people weren't able to stay home for financial reasons, but some people still needed to go to work, like grocery store workers, healthcare workers. How do you think the U.S. responded in protecting them? You know, I think we did kind of a poor job of protecting our essential workers. And, you know, there have been numerous studies that showed that, that people that worked in those sort of essential fields were particularly at risk, high risk for infection from COVID-19 early on in the pandemic. There are obviously some jobs that can't be done remotely. And I think figuring out how to protect those workers would have been, you know, things like stronger mask mandates, trying to limit non-essential business um, when possible, um, and creating, you know, safe and hygienic workplaces. I think a lot of hospitals responded well to that, but I know that that was good for every essential worker, um, especially some of the lower wage workers in like grocery stores. And one of the things that I personally think the U.S. failed at was just providing enough protective gear, masks, gowns, whatever they use. Do you agree or disagree with that? Yeah. I mean, I know early on in the pandemic, we had to you know, reuse our like N95s. I think the government could have done more to mobilize greater production of that. You know, I think initially there was mixed messaging about even whether or not people should wear masks, what kind of masks people should wear. Now I think there's more supply in terms of, you know, being able to get face shields or, or masks or, you know, gowns and things like that. But I think the question is of messaging around whether or not people should wear them. I know I've 
family members that work in grocery stores. I know it's you know tough for them to to get high quality masks early on in the pandemic, and I think that's something our responsibility of our elected officials and government to make sure that those people are safe. I'd like to shift away from COVID and disease specifically, and just ask, in general, how well do you think the U.S. does in meeting the goals of public health? I think we're doing pretty poorly. The, you know, the life expectancy has been dropping in this country, I think now for six or seven years in a row. You know, it's not just a COVID thing. You know, there are just articles in the news the other day about how COVID deaths reached over a million deaths. Overdose deaths were over well, 100,000 this past year. Um, you know, those are all contributing to earlier mortality in this country. You know, there's a lot of things that, that Medicare for All advocates talk about how we pay more for healthcare in this country, over $10,000, probably at this point, over $15,000 per capita, that we're essentially already paying for a Medicare for All system. But we aren't getting the, the outcomes that we want. You know, we're, we're far behind other developed nations in terms of our health outcomes. And, you know, we're spending all this money on, on health care. A lot of that goes towards, you know, hospitals, sort of acute care. Um, and we aren't actually spending that much on public health. Um, and sort of our paper that we wrote for APHA and their endorsement of single payer, we talked about how the spending for percentage of expenditure that goes towards public health has been, you know, dropping. And even during the pandemic, the amount that we spend on public health really hasn't been going up. And so, you know, I think that we're failing those aspects of, of the goals of public health. And then sort of like we were talking about earlier, some of the broader things like funding our public schools, funding infrastructure, those are necessary to meet the goals of public health. And I think we're also falling behind on that, you know, we often talk about how healthcare only accounts for like 20% of life expectancy, maybe even less. A smaller percentage has to do with genetics, and that leaves sort of most of what we deal with in terms of life, life expectancy has to do with our you know, health behaviors, where we live, how much money we have, access to grocery stores. And that stuff is all public health, and we aren't really sort of meeting our goals there. One of the things, and I think people often forget this is that the social determinants of health are very important. And if the US wants to improve its public health, we also need to take a look at how we can improve those social determinants of health for everybody. That's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, absolutely. When I was um, you know, when I was getting my master's in public health, I think in a lot of public health schools, I think this is pretty common across the country in public health curriculum that that will show you a pyramid of, you know, what determines, you know, health and the social determinants of health will sort of be the base of that pyramid. And further up, you know, maybe there's things about the kind of choices we make in everyday life. And at least, you know, when I was in public health, getting my master's, people would say, well, we can't really do too much about social determinants of health, but we can, you know, help people make healthier choices by, you know, like in the cafeteria, having the salad bar near the entrance instead of, you know, like the French fry bar or whatever. So people buy more salads than French fries. But I think that, you know, I think there's some something limited about that sort of worldview that we can't really impact the social determinants of health that way. And all we can do is sort of tweak around the edges and help people, you know, smoke less or eat more salads, which I think are totally worthwhile goals. But we also 
I think can do concrete things that, you know, improves people's health by addressing things like poverty, by the, you know, cost of healthcare, that, those sorts of things. I'm reminded of a joke where this, the joke is this guy's praying to God and he says, God, God, please let me win the lottery. Please let me win the lottery. And finally God responds and says, okay, I'll let you win the lottery, but you have to do something for me. And the guy says, whatever you want, God, what do I need to do? You have to buy a ticket. <laughs> so, of course, the point is, if you don't try to fix things, they're not going to get fixed, most likely. The, uh, there's a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where the one character says, you know, it could be a whole lot worse. And then, you know, the retort is it could also be a whole lot better. Yeah. All right. Moving on. In October of 2021, um, the American Public Health Association passed a resolution supporting a public single-payer health care system. And of course, you helped develop and advocate for the American Public Health Association to support single-payer. Why did you think that it was so important for the American Public Health Association to pass that resolution? I think there's a couple of reasons why it's so important. The American Public Health Association, APHA, is a big organization. It represents a lot of different people in the public health field. You know, physicians like myself, public, you know, epidemiologists, researchers, nurses, pharmacists. And, you know, this, so it's a big tense organization. And in fact, the people that sort of helped write this, I certainly wasn't alone or the most important person in writing this resolution. Um, and they wrote it with a lot of, you know, really thoughtful and, and smart colleagues who came from all sorts of different professional backgrounds, you know, epidemiology, nursing, pharmacy, social work that helped write this policy. And so I think, you know, having a big organization saying that this is a priority is a big deal. It helps, you know, set everyone's eyes sort of on the same goal. And so, you know, I think that's important. I think the other thing is that for us, when we sat down and start writing this, it seemed like something obvious that APH should support. And we were, some of us were surprised that APHA hadn't in fact already passed a resolution like this. And so I think for, for single payer activists, for Medicare for all activists, it's important to set our targets on, on some of these sort of low hanging fruits of organizations that are friendly to our cause and, and using that as a way of building publicity and, and getting the word out about Medicare for all. And then I think for me, I think no, no matter what you do for, for work or whatever is that, yeah, we should all look towards our professional organizations, our workplaces, unions, community groups, church groups, Boy Scouts, wherever, to organize for Medicare for all. Um, because it really is such an important thing. It's a life and death thing that impacts all of us. Um, and we should look to the to our natural networks and our communities to build support for this movement because we don't have the, the same money as the insurance companies to take out billboards and radio advertisements or whatever else they do. So we have to, to think about our, our grassroots organizing to, to build this movement. Well, one of the things you mentioned publicity, and of course, I'm an activist for Medicare for All. 
But until I talked to you, I wasn't even aware that the APHA had done this. And that concerns me a little bit. I like to think I'm well-informed, but sometimes I miss things. So why do you think that is, that it wasn't well-known? Well, I think part of it is, too, there's, you know, the process of once a resolution's passed, there's an editing process that takes a while for it to get finalized. There's certainly been a lot of other public health things that have been in the news, not the least of which is the pandemic this past year that I think can sometimes get overshadowed. And then I think also sometimes our, our professional organizations are you know, sometimes focused more on research and um, that sort of thing rather than getting the message out and organizing in the sort of advocacy that groups like Physicians for a National Health Program or Healthcare Now or National Nurses Union have a lot more experience with, like the American College of Physicians and Internal Medicine Organization also put out a policy in support of universal healthcare and single payer. And I think, you know, PNHP did good work with using that endorsement as a way of, of, you know, gathering attention around the Medicare for All movement. Well, do you think that having the American Public Health Association support this, passing this resolution will help in any major way? I think it's a step in the right direction. You know, obviously we have a long ways to go. Someone who's been advocating for Medicare for all for, for a number of years now has realized that it's not, you know, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. I think, you know, we have to, to build our support and our political power to make this a reality. And it's something that we have to make sure isn't an issue that just gets put on the back burner during non-election years. And, you know, having groups like APHA support single payer helps build momentum and, you know, keep it in the public attention. And, you know, I think a lot of Medicare for all active advocates have a long view of history and know that, you know, we're on the right side of history. Um, and that's why, you know, that I have mentors that have been advocating for this for decades. And, you know, I don't think they're they're not giving up anytime soon and I don't have any plans to give up anytime soon on, on advocating for this. So, you know, I want to be optimistic and say it's, it's right around the corner, but I know there's a ton of work we need to do between now and then. So, you know, one step at a time. And I think it's a step in the right direction. Well, I'll say this to give you an indication of how old I am. I'm on Medicare and I certainly hope that I can see Medicare for all past in my lifetime and hopefully sooner rather than later. Yeah, not to give away my age either. When I started medical school in 2014 and I you know, was trying to advocate for, for Medicare for all among my med school classmates, I you know it seemed sort of like a crazy idea at the time. And you know, since you know, Bernie Sanders campaign and a lot of, I think, advocacy for Medicare for all that's happened in the past, eight years has made that seem, seem less like a fringe, crazy idea and something more mainstream. I've been for Medicare for All for more than a decade. And I started this podcast in November of 2018. And I've learned a lot from interviewing people. But one of the things I would say is 
Medicare for all is not the crazy idea. What's the crazy idea is keeping our current healthcare system. Because the more I learn, the more I realize just how bad and harmful this system is. Absolutely. You know, I, the estimates are out there that 40 to 50,000 people die every year due to lack of insurance. You know, there's great racial and socioeconomic disparities in our healthcare that we see every day. I see every day working in healthcare. And I think it's a system that, that absolutely needs to be changed. And I think thinking that it, that it can't be changed is you know, the, the crazy idea. Before we end, is there anything that you would like to add? Yeah, you know, I think we got into it a little bit, but, you know, there's, there's so much that goes into to public health and, and single payer is an important step in that direction, but it's not, the, it's not going to be the, the end all fix to, to some of the issues of, that are facing public health. You know, there's all these attacks on abortion and reproductive rights that are going on in the news right now. And I think all these issues with opioid use disorder and substance use disorder and overdoses. And I think, you know, we need to, to take a hard look at our society and figure out how, how we can organize ourselves in a way that prioritizes people's health and wellness and not the profits of a few corporations or the, the luxuries of a few individuals and really think about how we can make ourselves into a better society, which I know Medicare for all although not the final step in that direction, I think would be an important catalyst in getting us there. Well, I certainly agree with that. And while I tend to focus on specifically the healthcare system and of course, Medicare for all, I realize that to really have an impact, we need a much stronger social safety net. And if we really want to do something about public health, we have to look at the broad approach that we were talking about earlier. Food, shelter, clothing, I would say education, healthcare, and especially mental health care. So I do have that perspective, although I don't cover it all that much on this podcast, but I think it is important to mention. Well, Tony, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Thank you. My guest, Joseph Q. Jarvis, MD, MSPH, received his medical and public health training at the University of Utah School of Medicine. His career includes time as a family doctor at a community health center, the state health officer for Nevada, a public health physician for state and federal agencies, a physician consultant with a national practice, and a specialist in occupational lung disease at a tertiary care center. Dr. Jarvis has seen American healthcare across the entire spectrum of care. 30 years ago, Dr. Jarvis came to the realization that American healthcare fails to deliver quality care at a reasonable price, and that Americans are suffering from society-wide health insecurity. Since then, he has done everything he could think of to help all Americans realize how our health system is failing us and what we can do about it. He shares his conclusions with anyone who will listen or read his book, The Purple World, 
Healing the Harm in American Healthcare. Dr. Joseph Jarvis, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So I'd like to start with something that a reviewer of your book, The Purple World, said. Dr. Jarvis argues that the medical industry complex exerts a public policy vice on Congress, which allows insurance companies to transfer the growing price of care to patients. Medicine has been reduced to a business opportunity, but one cannot maximize profits and optimize care. So what, in your experiences and observations, led you to that conclusion? When I was the state health officer for the state of Nevada, one of the tasks that the legislature gave to the state health division was to create a trauma center and a trauma system for the state of Nevada. Now, uh, that requires a regionalization of the care so that hospitals and doctors throughout the state would cooperate with each other and uh, make sure that wherever the trauma patient entered the system, he or she would get to the best place for care for that patient as soon as possible. So we came up with a series of regulations and a whole system-wide entity that required that there be a designation for the highest level trauma center called the Trauma One Center. And then we opened the bid for all of the hospitals in the state to participate and and buy for that designation. Everyone else would then work at at their request. All the other hospitals would acknowledge the Trauma One Center and do their role, play their role according to what that uh, lead trauma center had in mind. So what I did know before we opened the bidding process was one of the hospitals in the state was consistently viewed as the best trauma hospital anywhere. It was down in Las Vegas. And one of the reasons I knew that was this was back in the era when Ronald Reagan was the president of the United States. And he was traveling to Nevada quite often because there was a U.S. Senate race going on at the time, and he was trying to support the incumbent, the Republicans. So come to Las Vegas and stump in favor of this uh, sitting United States senator, and every time he came to the state, his team, his advance team would come, and they would search out all of the things that might be needed during a presidential visit, including a place to take the president in case he needed promise. And they always chose that one hospital over all the other hospitals. So I knew it was pretty good, and I hoped that it would participate in the in the trauma system we were organizing. But when the bidding process was open, they simply did not agree to submit a bid. The one hospital in Las Vegas that did submit a bid was not nearly as well equipped, and when they were reviewed by an outside team to see if they actually met the criteria, they failed. So there we had a very embarrassing situation for the state of Nevada, it wanted to form a trauma system, but it had no hospital willing to serve as the lead center um, that could actually pass the review. Now, right around that time when we were in that stuck in that terrible situation, I happened to be visiting the hospital uh, that had good trauma care in it, 
and I ran into the CEO of the hospital. And I asked him, why didn't you apply to be the lead trauma center? I think you could have passed the review. And his answer was very revealing. What he said was, State of Nevada licenses my facility for X number of beds. I think it was like 450 beds. We actually usually have 350 beds open and staff. When a patient comes to our emergency room, we look and see if the patient has any ability to pay for care if they need to be admitted. If they don't have the ability to pay, we tell the patient that we're at our limit of staffing, 350 beds, and we defer the patient to some other hospital. If they have the ability to pay, then we call in a nurse, staff up another bed, and bring the patient into the hospital. He said, your trauma regulations required us, if we were the lead trauma center, to accept every patient regardless of ability to pay. And we are in the business of making money. First and foremost, we're a for-profit hospital, and I can't afford uh, the hit to my bottom line of being forced to admit non-paying patients. So that's why we didn't apply. And it suddenly dawned on me at that moment in stunning fashion that the for-profit motive was all about something other than actually taking care of patients and of a community. That's what I mean by it devolved the healthcare um, transaction into a business opportunity instead of actually caring for people. Well, that's very interesting. And I wish I could say that it's surprising, but it doesn't surprise me. This is an age-old problem. I have stumbled on a story from way back several hundred years ago that involved the English poet John Donne, who was one of the most well-known poet of his era. The end of his life, he served as the Dean of St. Paul's, which is still the cathedral standing in London today. Uh, one of the things that's not well known about John Donne was that his stepfather was a physician and a very well-regarded, highly renowned physician of that era. Uh, that that his name was John Simenges. Uh, that, that was uh, John Donne's stepfather. John Simenges was a member of the Royal Academy of Medicine, and he attended the royal family. Uh, and he was quite wealthy through his medical practice. And he had a lot of student doctors who worked with him, and he used to teach them, make your bargain with the patient while he is yet in pain. That's exactly what we continue to do in the United States to this day. We make our bargain with patients when they're in pain so that they're forced, they're over the barrel, they're forced to do everything possible financially and then some in order to get the care they need for themselves or their family, which is, of course, why health care costs are now the leading cause of bankruptcy in the United States. So what do you see as the solution to this problem? We have a, a system uh, where healthcare financing is largely from the taxpayer in the United States. American taxpayers pay higher healthcare taxes than do the citizens of any other country anywhere else in the world. We've got a four trillion dollar health economy every year in the United States, and probably three trillion of that four trillion comes from taxes. That is a by itself, the $3 trillion is the largest healthcare expenditure anywhere on the globe. 
for any nation on a per capita basis or on a percentage of the GDP basis. We need to take those public dollars and use them efficiently and buy with them high-quality care. And by paying for care efficiently and by paying for better quality care, we will reduce the amount of cost involved with health care. And our prices in the United States are ridiculously high. And we will be able to deliver care to every single citizen in our country of a higher quality with no cost at the point of service. So I'm what I'm arguing for is better care and care that is simpler, so it's more efficiently financed, and therefore the care will be less expensive, and it can be delivered universally with no point of service payment. There's only one kind of health policy that fits that, and that's called single-payer health care. Some people refer to this on a national basis as Medicare for All, which uh, is in the title of your podcast. Uh, Medicare for All is national single-payer. But it's the goal. It's the goal to have every American have that experience. We can do this. We can afford it because we're already paying for it. I would like to broaden the conversation a bit. And from a previous conversation, I know that you classify yourself as a conservative. My experience has been that conservatives are generally against Medicare for All. I would be interested to have you discuss your political philosophy and how you came to support single-payer. Well, you just did that. But within that philosophy as a conservative, how can you support a single-payer health care system? A conservative, in my opinion, a real conservative, a traditional American conservative, has a set of values that are based on uh, the values in the Constitution and the values that the founders of this country followed from biblical precepts. Today's conservatives, members of the so-called conservative party, the Republican Party, have completely lost their mooring on traditional American conservatism. Some of those principles are expressed directly in the Bible. For instance, uh, Jesus of Nazareth taught his people that the very least among them who are sick need to be visited. And nations who fail to do that will find themselves on the left hand of God. Prophets throughout the Old Testament reiterated that same teaching. Jeremiah said, is there no balm in Gilead? Why is the health of my people not restored? Why are you, and Ezekiel said, why are you ruling us with force and harshness instead of taking care of my people? These are teachings that the Bible clearly articulates, and today's modern conservatives have totally forgotten those biblical moorings. I'm a conservative, and I rely on those people. I try to live them. And we should have a healthcare system that reflects them. Many, many, many of the hospitals created in this country were created by Christian organizations trying to live up the biblical principles, many of which have now been sold into for-profit status and totally on board from that principle. Healthcare should not be about business and profit. It should be about taking care of people, about expressing the love we have for one another through the care of each individual. 
charity means, and that's a biblical principle, charity means that kind of looking out for each other. So that's first, in my mind, a conservative principle. Secondly, conservatives do not hate government. Conservatives embrace government and its role and function in our lives, including to promote the general welfare. That's a constitutional principle. It's just that the level of government is, sub- is something that conservatives like to see debated, whether it should be a federal principally solution for the problem that we're dealing with or uh, something that states would handle better under the Constitution. So done directly as a federal-state partnership, it fits very well in the conservative view of government serving us, promote the general welfare, and uh, all the other things that are in the preamble of the Constitution. Third, conservatives are favor fiscal responsibility. They favor something that can be controlled so that it's not outgrowing its place in the in the overall gross domestic product. Healthcare costs have been rising faster than the gross domestic product for decades now. We uh, have a, a healthcare system cost now that's about 20% of the gross domestic product. And in that, we are outstripping all other first world countries two to one, most of whom are averaging around 10% of the gross domestic product on healthcare. Why that matters is because you can only have 100% of the gross domestic product. And if you're spending more and more of it on healthcare, you're spending less and less of it on other things that we also need. Conservatives are aware of that and are trying to keep it framed, uh, that is, fiscal constraints in, in the proper framing. So there are several reasons why conservatives should endure single payer. It's more fiscally restrained, it's more morally based, and it's more constitutionally placed within the framework of what the state and the federal government should share. Those are at least three of the reasons why I favor it. And I'll give you a final one, and that is a conservative all in favor of markets where market forces can be applied, but healthcare is not an arena where the prerequisites of a free market exist. For instance, a free market requires a buyer who can be where? The caveat in four that's classically applied to market forces. Healthcare does not have buyers. It does not have shoppers. It does not have consumers. Healthcare has patients. And by definition, they are not able to take care of themselves, to fend for themselves, and to be where. Some of them are actually comatose and absolutely the opposite of aware. Second, in healthcare, we have sellers who are ethically responsible, first and foremost, for the care of their patients. In a market, we have sellers that are supposed to look out for their own interests and consider no other. They're supposed to make as much money as possible. That's what they're in the market to do. That's not a seller in healthcare. In fact, we don't have sellers in that regard in healthcare. We have people who are professionally duty-bound to help their patients, either as doctors or nurses or other kinds of practitioners. Third, in a market, the exchange or transaction between the buyer and the seller has no implications and no interest to anyone else. However, in healthcare, what a patient gets from the healthcare system, from a doctor and a nurse, actually has implications for everyone else in society. The tuberculosis patient who's actively 
spreading a contagious uh, bacteria need proper treatment so the rest of us are protected from that exposure. The trauma patient needs trauma care immediately and quickly, must be sent through the cooperative process that I've already described to the right place so that the high, highly trained, highly skilled trauma team can stay in practice so that when you and I need it, next, the next patient up gets the team that's really skilled and at its best. So, uh, again, the transaction in healthcare is not anything like a market. Finally, in a market, price determines demand. The higher the price, the lower the demand. There's an inverse relationship between price and demand. And in healthcare, that's simply not true. People uh, do not buy an appendectomy because it's on sale or its price is low. Uh, people like myself do not have diabetes have no need for insulin, and I don't care how low you price insulin, even if you gave it away, I won't want it. There's no demand that, you know, I won't have any demand for it. Only people who have to be ill with diabetes who need insulin uh, will, will require the medication, and that puts them over a barrel so that if we pretend that a market exists, we allow the sellers of that very, uh, you know, important medication uh, to price it as high as they want to price it and price people out and allow them to die because they simply can't afford it. That is not a market operating. That's coercion in the worst sense of the word. So I'm a conservative. I believe in market forces where they can be applied, and healthcare is not one of those settings. Well, there's so much that you said there, but I think one of the most important points is that sometimes markets don't work. And I think there's an assumption that markets can solve every problem. And, as you pointed out, that's just not the case. That's exactly right. It is not the case. I first recognized this again when I was in Nevada as a state health officer. I arrived in Nevada just after finishing my training in Utah. These are two states that are contiguous. They both share the Great Basin, and they're alike in many, many respects. But in healthcare, they were very dissimilar. Utah had a highly developed healthcare system with trauma care, open heart surgery. Right before I arrived in Nevada, Utah had been the place where the first artificial heart had been transplanted, uh, for instance. Nevada had none of those resources. As I told you, it was just barely trying to figure out how to do trauma care. And yet, interestingly, I realized once I got to Nevada that the care was twice as expensive in hospitals in Nevada as, as they were in Utah. That's, that's a remarkable thing to discover. Highly skilled, highly technical services in Utah, much better prepared to deal with all of the breadth of problems that occur in American healthcare, much better prepared than Nevada, were cheaper. Why? Because high-quality healthcare costs less. That's why. And when you can't, when you focus only on the bottom line, on making a profit, you are firstly incentivized to provide mediocre care. For instance, as explained by the the CEO of the hospital in Las Vegas, who refused to participate in the trauma search. Better care available there, but he didn't want to he didn't want to get involved with it because it wasn't making as much money for him to do that. He was incentivized to do something else. 
You want me to hold one of those? Two or one? Hey, I'm Steve Lipman, Dr. Stephen Lipman. I've been in Louisville since 76. I'm a professor at the medical school, and actually I'm retired for the last three years. I'm an emeritus professor at the moment. I still um, am connected to medicine, though. I do primary care on Monday. I've got a shift tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon on the Family Health Care Center on Broadway, and then I run a Survivors of Torture Clinic on Thursdays and some Wednesdays or Fridays. Uh, and I do that in the medicine department. Uh, I do PTSD work on Thursday and primary care on Monday. And I teach medical students. I, I do the ethics class for the sophomore students. I do some cultural sensitivity classes for the whole medical school, stuff like that. I do a lot of stuff. I mean, it's obvious that we need single-payer health care. I mean, we have people without insurances. And it was just a huge change when Obamacare came in that suddenly you could give a patient a prescription, he'd say, I might fill this. Instead of, well, what are you giving me that for? That's stupid. I can't hope to afford it. And it's really funny to work in the, in the primary care clinic. I have a special prescription that has the name at the top, and I can write a script there for anything. And it's even better than the insurance because it's free. And with insurance, they want, oh, they only... They don't do this drug, or they don't do this drug, and then by the time you look it up, every insurance company has a different rule. It's impossible to figure out who who doesn't cover, you know, this or that drug. You know, we want to write haloperidol, or they only cover haldol, haloperidol, but then this one doesn't cover haloperidol at all. It has to be flufenazine or whatever. So you never know with so many different companies, each one having their own policy. Even It used to even be that way when we had the the multiple different Medicaid providers, every Medicaid provider was different. You know, now it's mostly passport. But a few, five years ago, yeah. But at five years ago, I remember there was A, B, C, D. Oh, and I even remember another evil thing. Some kind of a edict came down from, I guess, Frankfurt. Doctors are not allowed to tell patients which is the best insurance for them. And we all did it. And so we used to make a joke out of it, but we wouldn't say, I'm not telling you which insurance to buy, but the best one is. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I mean, Passport is now pretty good, actually. But um, it was just amazing when you have so many players in the field, you never know. Each one has their own little way of cheating the patient out of their access to whatever medicine or doctor or whatever it is and how many visits you can have and how long the visits can last and what procedure can be done but only if you do this first all this stuff so single payer it just makes all the sense in the world and like like I was saying in the hope clinic which is the family medical was a family health care center I can write a script for anything I want and it's filled and I had a, a brand new diabetic the other day and I even got him an appointment with a diabetic uh, dietitian educator, which for t if I tried to do that with an insurance patient, they probably would say, well, has he tried the medicine for six months to prove he can do it or not do it? I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating because I'm sure some policies, the policy that I have probably pays for all that stuff. But I'm, I run through the U of L program and they pay everything. I mean, I'm one of the rich boys that just lives off the cream. And so, um, 
The, the U of L retirement plan was wonderful, and it includes lifetime insurance for me and my wife, even if I die. Of course, I had to work there 40 years, but well, it didn't have to be 40, but I did for 40 years. But <clears throat> so you know, single payer. Oh, and I, I could tell you another story. I, I got injured one time on a when I was on sabbatical from the University of Louisville. I was on sabbatical at the University of London, and I had an eye injury. So I ran across the street. There was a little GP office there. I ran in there, and he took a look at my eye, and he says, no, you need to see an ophthalmologist. So he picked up the phone, told me exactly where to go. When I got there, they were expecting me. I went in there. They treated me, saw the ophthalmologist. He did everything he needed to do. And when I said, well, here's my insurance card, they said, get out of here. It'd take us more It'd take us more." It wastes time and energy for us to figure out what to do with your car. Just get the hell out of here and go, go home and take care of your eye. And then the other key thing that Americans have completely screwed up in, my follow-up care was not with the ophthalmologist. I didn't need an ophthalmologist again. But in America, you'd go back to see the, op- the ophthalmologist would say, oh, yeah, it looks good. You're done. Well, I had to just go back to the GP, and he said, oh, it's done. And I have another story. I remember when my daughter was a little girl, I mean, she's now almost 40, but when she was about eight or something, she fell down and cut her chin. So took her to the pediatrician. He said, no, that's pretty bad. We want a plastic surgeon. That seems good. A little girl gets hurt. You want to have a nice no scar. So she sees the plastic surgeon, but then the stitches have to be taken out by the plastic surgeon. Well, what did the plastic surgeon do? He looked in the room Oh, yeah, and then said to the nurse, go take the stitches out. Well, that was $100. Well, if you'd gone to the pediatrician, he would have looked in the room and said, huh, go take the stitches out. Same story. I mean, was it infected? No. Was it okay? Yes, so take the stitches out. But you pay, I don't know, $40 for the pediatrician visit and 150 for the specialist. I'm just making up those numbers. But that's another place. Oh, I know another one. Um, when my wife, when we were in England, she, my wife had a recurrent urinary tract infection, one after the other, treated, no good, treated, no good. So we happened to be at Oxford. So um, we saw the family doctor, and he said, okay, I'm going to schedule it for you. So he scheduled the urogram in the morning um, and the, ped- and the uh, urologist Two hours later, all pre-scheduled, you didn't have to make double appointments. Then the urologist saw her after looking at the x-ray, finished the whole thing off, and then the follow-up was with a GP. And you didn't have to go see the urologist again. And, and he's he doesn't like those patients anyway. He likes to solve, I mean, specialists should solve the big problem. And your GP knows your other medicines, knows your whole story. That's where the, the, the treatment ought to be. I mean, the follow-up. Now, if she got another urinary tract, and she never got another urinary tract infection either, but if she had, okay, you go back to the urologist, but if everything was fixed, you don't need the super specialist, and you can afford to have less of them. And here in America, uh, all right, family medicine residencies, as I understood it, in March, I mean, when when the results came out for matching, family medicine programs did not fill, but... 6% 6% of the American medical students in America didn't get a residency. Now, is that crazy? What is the one specialty we're really, 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 really short of? It's family medicine. So 
there are kids there are kids out there who you've subsidized their education and they've gone two or three hundred or one to three hundred thousand dollars in debt to become an MD and now they're not going to get a residency. Fifty percent of the students who fail to get a residency the first year don't get it the second year. Now some of them do, obviously, 50% do, but that means there's a, say a 2% never get their residency. And nobody knows that, and it's just crazy. You know, uh, the interventional cardiologists, they fill their residency, you know, the interventional uh, blah, 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 and ophthalmology and all those high paid specialties, they feel like a champ. and. Internal medicine didn't feel this year. Family medicine didn't feel this year. I mean, it's just completely crazy. But, you know, interventional radiology loaded to the gills. And then kids not get a residency at all. I mean, I don't know. That's just, um, I could go on. Well, I think the main thing to me is that it, it's, it would be simpler and cheaper in my opinion, to just say there's a single payer and everybody's on Medicaid, Medicare, or Cade, either one, doesn't make any difference. If everybody was on Medicaid and the drug plans were simplified in some way or just built into the thing, why should we have extra red tape? Just say Medicaid for everybody and it covers prescription. Hello. That's not too hard. We've got two homework assignments this week, listeners. The first one is Google Kaiser Health News Medical Debt. After reading that article, try to justify this system. And the second assignment is reach out to our chairperson, Kay Tillo. You can email Kay at nurse npo at aol.com nurse npo at aol.com and uh, ask Kay for the details on this uh, Washington DC trip to the Medicare birthday celebration and rally for Medicare for all. I hope everyone has a good week. Thanks for listening. And please do not get sick. For Single Payer Radio, I'm Mark McKinley. Thank you.